Hey, I'm Asher. And I'm Jackson. And what you're about to listen to is strictly confidential. Swiggity smoothy coming from that booty. All right. Hey, Asher, how's your week been? My week's been good, but uh, man, I in my free time, if I haven't been watching basketball, I've been drowning in media. Yeah, I've been thinking about I've been thinking about that too because every single day of my life, I'm physically accosted by people telling me a different TV show they want me to watch. This sounds like a lot. This sounds a lot like when we have Skype calls before recording the episode, and we all we both just assault each other with new Netflix programs and television shows we gotta watch. And I don't ever feel like I'm watching that many shows. I don't ever feel like I'm watching enough shows to oppress other people with the amount of shows. You know what I'm saying? Sure. But when somebody tells me about a new TV show, my immediate first thought is, well, got to add that to the queue of 4,500 shows I need to watch. I know. It's a, it's a burden. I think we should just get rid of all media altogether and start over. So that Strictly Confidential is the only thing people can listen to. <laughs> I, knew we could, I knew we could take this interesting thought experiment and turn it into a, like something that's self-serving. Well, even, even outside of trying to get people only listening to this show ever, which I don't think people should do because I think there are quite a few other shows. I think that if we got rid of all media and started over, we'd still end up with a lot of good media by the end of like three months. And it would mean that everybody could just watch that instead of watching like eight trillion Jessica Jones episodes. Or... <laughs> well, the problem is it, it's it's a weird problem to have, but there's too much good content. You know, we're in the quote unquote golden age of television because apparently TV just used to be ass because if this is the golden age of television, I do not want to be alive in the 70s. But well, I mean, I mean we, a it, lot of. A lot of it has to be like historically based on wealth and stuff, right? Because back then, nobody could make a TV show unless they got all of the funding. That's why, like, Seinfeld may be a good show, but I will never watch it because of the random <laughs> slap bass going through it. And if there was the competition that we have nowadays, that slap bass would not be allowed. Yeah, it never would have. It never would have happened. Well, I mean, the, the biggest problem though is that. We have good media and then also living in the post-internet era of hyperbole. Like, everything that we enjoy is immediately categorized as the best thing ever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't... I think that every sentence I've ever said is a hyperbole. (laughs) But yeah, we're always saying, okay, this is the best TV show of all time. You have to watch this. Like, minutes ago before we started recording, I told Asher about what I think is the best sitcom of all time. Like genuinely without thinking about the hyperbole of it, the, any of that. I just think it's the best. I think The Good Place is the strongest sitcom on TV. And I know that every person listening thinks if they haven't seen The Good Place, they think, yeah, it's probably good, but I've got so many shows. Yeah. I mean, if, if I truly took you at face value and that was the best television show, the best sitcom of all time, then what, what the hell am I doing talking to you right now? Like I should be watching that show. But without a doubt. But the thing is, that just goes on to the the I throw it on, I throw it on the pile, my big heaping pile of must watch TV shows. I think we also have this misguided placement of hyperbole that hyperbole is going to convince somebody else that they need to watch something. Like, yeah. sure, it may be the best sitcom of all time, and it may actually be that. 
But why does Asher need to see the best sitcom of all time? Just because it's a hyperbole doesn't mean it's valuable. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And sitcoms is a bad example because all you have to do is be a little bit better than Full House to get that title. And that is a low bar. You think... (laughs) Okay. Completely changing this topic. You think Full House is the best sitcom of all time? That's what I'm saying. It's a it's a low bar. I'm saying the best sitcom is not even good. You know what? Drake and Josh exist, so this is all null and void. That's the best sitcom of all time. Next. Speaking of Drake and Josh, do you want to know what our oh, topic yes, is today? Please. please tell me it's related to Drake and Josh. It is not. But in a way, it is also not related to Drake and Josh. Okay. Today's, to- today's topic is about how the Super Bowl of 1969 was fixed. I mean, that, that would be a big deal. There's a lot of money, a lot of money involved internally and externally with the Super Bowl. First of all, I want to start by saying the worst thing about doing research for this show. And it has to be websites that have their content in slideshows. <laughs> and that's not hyper- hyperbole. Genuinely, isn't that true? Yeah. Because a lot of the times, to be completely honest, I don't know what I'm going to do this my episode about. And so I'll Google stuff like, interesting conspiracy theories or interesting weird internet things and stuff like that. And I imagine you probably do the same. Sure. And, and most of the time what I'm looking at is listicles. Yeah. Where I'll see a list and think, okay, this probably has some good stuff on there. And so I look through the list and find something. The worst of those is always the ones that end up being, hey, this list has 73 items, but you have to click each time to see the next item. Now, clicks equal engagement. Engagement equals dollars. I don't, I don't believe that these websites are even focused on trying to help me in any way or produce content in any way. They are solely focused on ad revenue. But you think they just that, don't know how to change the default setting on a Squarespace template? No, because none of these look good enough to be Squarespace. I think it's... <laughs> I think it's more like when you load up one of those websites where the ads at the bottom are all like, this woman didn't believe that her husband had 12 arms and you like have to click on it. Yeah. And I don't think any of the websites about women who didn't believe that their husbands have 12 arms are actual websites. I think it's just a, a photo that somebody photoshopped along with 45 ads that are solely based on click generating. Revenue. Yeah, they can't just give you that photo. Like they know what you're there for and they're going to make you work for it. Yeah, and every time it's just about the ad revenue. But that's how we got today's story. So the Super Bowl of 1969 was fixed. And to give a little bit of backstory, since neither of us are huge, or I'd say even teaspoon-sized football fans, 1969 was the third year that an AFL and NFL championship game was held. And it was the first year it was officially called the Super Bowl. Really? Is it the very first one that recently? Back then, to give a little bit of backstory, it was kind of like the NBA championship where there were two conferences. Yeah. And and then at the very last game they played, except none of these teams played very much during the whole season. It would be the AFL was separate, the NFL was separate, and the best team of both would come together for a championship game. Gotcha. And so this, this is the third year that that happened, but it was the first year that it was called the Super Bowl. Or as I lovingly called it when I was younger and didn't understand comedy, this superb owl. <laughs> um, this was also that's still pretty good. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know if it is. This was also the year before the AFL and the NFL merged to become what we know as the NFL today. Um, so that that plays a lot into why this game was rigged the way it looks to be rigged. And just to preface this, I think this might actually be the most convincing theory we've had so far. 
Okay, dang. Um, and I'm not saying that just because I want to follow this hyperbole train to the ends of the earth. So a lot of this interview comes, or a lot of this theory comes from an interview with Bubba Smith, defensive end for the Colts in 69. Um, fun fact, Bubba Smith later became an actor best known for his role as Moses Hightower in the Police Academy movies, which is a series we've all heard of, but nobody's actually seen a single film. So the Jets ended up, this game was between the Jets and the Colts, and the Jets won the game when the Colts were favored to win by over 18 points. Okay, so so that was a safe bet. If you're if you're gambling on the Super Bowl, that's a good bet. That's an easy bet. Uh, but before the game, the Jets quarterback Joe Namath guaranteed their victory, which ended up being the true prediction because the Jets ended up winning. I think it was something like twenty-one to seven. So this wasn't just confidence. This was him saying, "No, I already know we're gonna win." Yeah, I couldn't find the exact quote he was saying, but he. He came out and said he had he had full confidence they were going to win. Okay. And in hindsight, that may seem like he knows too much, but maybe at the time he would just that was just his version of getting himself amped up, right? And I think, yeah, I think a lot of a lot of athletes, particularly probably football players, have a decent amount of confidence in stuff like this. So beforehand you could just claim, oh, he's just trying to carry his team, and the quarterback is the one that like Obviously, everybody on a football team is valuable, but the quarterback is the leader in a sense. Of course. So during the interview, when Bubba Smith was asked the hardest loss he experienced, he said that it was this game. And when he was asked if it was if the Jets were actually good, this is what he said. He said, no, the Jets were not that good. Something was happening and I didn't know what it was. We were inside the 25 times in the first half and came away with no points. That's not the characteristics of the Colts. You understand what I'm saying? Hmm. And so a lot of this was a lot of this theory was propagated by Bubba Smith and his interviews a decent amount later. But there's this game was a weird, weird game. To dive into the, just a little bit of the statistics, for one, there were analysts that believed that the Jets weren't even the best team in the AFL at the time. Okay, uh, it's getting a little subjective there, but we know that statistics have changed a lot in the last. 50 years of sports, right? Do we? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to assume we do. The three-point line wasn't even invented in basketball until uh, like a certain amount of time ago. Yeah. Obviously. I did know that, but that's just because basketball is the good sport. Yes. I completely agree that basketball is the good sport. Um, but yeah, the the three-point line didn't exist in 1961. Um but it was tested it for the first time in 1945. So there's like a lot of stuff like that that changes, but statistics of sports also change. Like the way they track things, the way they value different stats is going to be completely different nowadays. So what what I believe the analysts are saying is that it's less subjective and more that based on the statistics they were studying at the time, the Jets were the best in the AFL. But if you go back and look at statistics now, that wouldn't be the same case. Okay, well, let's get to the rigging and debauchery. Is debauchery the right word there? Uh, yeah, probably. Debauchery isn't like, that's not like weird pervert stuff, right? What is debauchery? Oh, yeah, no, that's weird pervert stuff. Damn it. <laughs> Excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. All right, so I don't really want to know about the debauchery at all. Can we talk about fixing the sports game so that people came out with money? 
But the reason behind fixing this game is what makes it interesting to me. It's not, it wasn't fixed at all for a financial standpoint or anything. The reason behind fixing this game is likely the most reasonable reasoning we've reasoned so far. Okay, dang. Somehow this theory even has its own awful website completely just made of poorly added and poorly photoshopped photos and HTML. The website's titled The Luckiest Football Game Ever Won, The True Story of Super Bowl Three.com. I don't actually know what the URL is, but I know for sure it's not .com. You, you never get to a site like this through a .com. Uh, no, it's actually just, and I don't know how we got this URL, but it's SuperBowl3.net. That's a git and the .net, that's, but that's still a git. Good job. I mean, in this, in the late 60s, like that's still a pretty good, like it used to be just .com, .net, and .org, I believe. So like back then we didn't have .bicycle or .christmas. Truly dark um, times. Yeah. <laughs> We're in the golden age now. But here in this article, the author says, in those two contests, the AFL, talking about the last two Super Bowls, the AFL championship had been so thoroughly dominated by its NFL counterpart that cracks began appearing in the proposed merger of the two leagues. If the AFL didn't prove it could compete soon, the merger would be in serious jeopardy. A 2016 league with 10 last place teams would hardly seem credible to the ticket buying public. Mm -hmm. So they just needed the other conference to look better than they were? Is that what you're saying? Basically, yeah. So Bubba Smith said this the same thing in his interview, but the idea is that he they needed the AFL to not seem like the garbage that they were if they were going to merge the two conferences. Okay, so in a much more roundabout way, this was about money, but not in the not in the way you would think that you like with fixing a boxing match where it's all just like bets you've made with the mafia or whatever. This is about the prospect of making the AFL as in as an in, entire entity much richer by joining forces with the NFL. But that's not why the game was fixed. The game was fixed so that the NFL would still make a good amount of money. Hmm. And so the way they the way they fixed it is from regulation refs uh changing different calls and stuff and then uh the main quarterback for the Colts wasn't actually playing until the last six minutes of the game when they were already behind by three touchdowns. So the main quarterback was not Bubba. No, Bubba wasn't even a quarterback. He was just a defensive lineman or a defensive end. He's okay. just the one. So, so clearly he was not in on it. What, however, how, do you think that members of the team were in on it? Or is this just entirely a referee? Is, is this the... Uh, is it entirely a top-down situation where the referees are just not making obvious calls and they're getting a, like subtle advantages? Or do you think it's fixed from the inside and they're telling players to essentially take dives? So I think that it's mostly a top-down situation. I think that there's a good chance that the coaches were involved. Yeah, I mean, because logistically, I can't imagine being able to keep an entire team quiet. It would have to be something that only the coaches and the refs knew about. Right. So it's tricky because this would have to be something that these people would have to keep quiet, not just before the game or during the game, but forever after the game. 
Yeah, because I mean, if I'm an ex NFL player, I'm you're gonna catch me on Sports Center telling everyone about the 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 debauchery, the the rigging that went on, <laughs> the sexual deviancy of my coach. Yes, uh, I'm gonna cut that line. But, <laughs> but so yeah, I do think thinking about it that way that there's probably not a chance that any of the the team knew. I think it was probably localized to. A, an, a group in the NFL like leadership that was working on figuring out a way to make the AFL seem less bad. What's so interesting to me about this is that it makes sense from a, like it, it makes sense that this would be why this game was fixed, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it it's definitely a stunt, but it still makes sense. Like I, I get that the main reason when people hear, uh, athletic event was fixed. People are going to think, oh, that's because this guy bet a lot of money on it and realized he had dunked up and needed to switch it this direction. But I think the, the 69 Super Bowl could have been used as kind of like a, not a political platform, but a platform for the NFL and the AFL to agree on something. Yeah. Which AFL has your football, huh? How... <laughs> How ass do you have to be that the you know, you the opposing side is like I'm not taking a dive for the money I'm taking a dive to make you just look a little bit better. Well, do you have any questions about today's theory? My only question is: next time, can we do a theory that's about the NBA so that I know what the heck we're talking about and I we can talk about a good sport? Yeah. So I I also dislike football. And I don't think anybody who I mean, knows- the, the entire time all I could think about was the comparisons from AFL to NFL to the East and West Conference and being like, man, I wonder how we're going to make the East Conference look like it's you can play basketball. It's frustrating because I, I think anybody who listens to this show knows that neither of us like football very much or have ever really. I don't I don't know if you ever liked football very much, but I've never liked football very much. And so it's tricky diving into a topic like that. But I do. I do believe that this uh, this game was fixed. Um, I think that it makes sense to try and make the AFL look a little bit better than it was. I mean, and yeah. to, to, to get to that point, you got to realize that when you're dealing, and this is true for the NBA and the like Major League Soccer and everything else, it it is a sport, and it is the display of the physical strength and physical ability and prowess, whatever. But it is also a business and a brand. Like, the NFL is a brand. And yeah. it's going to do what it has to do to protect that brand. And if it can do these little, like, behind-the-scenes, like, referees just don't make certain calls, coaches don't put certain people in, they can still allow the players to play to the best of their ability and still control the outcome of the game. Yeah, that's... I mean, that's how all sports works, is it's it's really easy for you to fake small things in sports because they're small things. Like it's, it's easy to lean. It's easy to have a ref lean a specific way on calls because the reason you have refs is because those things are subjective. Right. And that calls are difficult. You wouldn't need the calls. You wouldn't need the refs at all if it was always obvious. And for, you know, whoever you put in the game, that's also subjective because you could, I mean, you cover your track as a coach by saying like, you didn't put in your star player. It's like, well, he, you know, he was off today and I wanted to give, we have this new rookie and I wanted to give him a shot. He seemed really promising. He was really on fire at practice. You know what I mean? Like you, you can, 
kind of just use subjective reasoning to defend any action as a coach. And yeah. you could, that, I mean, that, that it's, I mean, it's certainly something that could happen. I don't know if I'm fully there and I believe that it was fixed, but the idea that they, the NFL would fix something for the benefit of the league as a whole, that doesn't feel like a stretch at all. And the idea that you can do little changes behind the scenes that are invisible to the crowd at the time we were watching the game to greatly influence the outcome. Because I don't, I don't believe that, you know, if, if the backups played an amazing game for the Colts or whatever, and, and like they, they put in the third string guys, I don't think that they would have, if, if they had the ability that day to win the game, I think they still would have won the game. You see what I'm saying? Like, I think they were still allowing the game to happen. They were just influencing it as much as they possibly could. Yeah. Because the idea of someone getting to the one, you know, someone, there's a breakaway and a guy gets to the five yard line and then whoops, I, I tripped over my shoelace and falling and not making it to the, to the end zone. Cause that's originally what I imagined was going on was that they were intentionally playing bad football. But I don't think that, I don't think that's the harder thing to fake. You know what I mean? Like, I think if I think that if there's a really obvious pass and then he just throws it into the stands, people are suspicious. But uh, if you get a third string guy and he's doing his damnedest, but it's just not good enough, you know that that's a little more believable. Yeah, and I think you could also argue that it's a case for the um, AFL being better than people thought they were as well. Sure, I mean that's what they wanted. <laughs> that's. What- well, it, it, that's exactly what they wanted people to say was that, oh, the AFL is actually better than uh, we thought. Well, whatever they did, it worked because the NFL is an absolute juggernaut. Even though they are slowly dripping fans or whatever, they're slowly losing, losing a, they sprung a leak. They still are absolutely dominant in the United States for all professional sports. NBA is on its way up. NFL is technically on its way down, but there's still such a huge gap there. Like NFL is 100% still the king. So whatever whatever it takes to reach there, you know, like the ends justify the means for the NFL, I'm thinking is what they're thinking. Yeah, 100%. You sound so interested in what I'm saying. Let me say that again. Yeah, 100 freaking percent. <laughs> I know you had some subpar coffee this morning, so I'm not going to take it personally. Yeah, but uh, but I wish I I wish I had my coffee because it's uh, getting cold in here. It's gotten chilly all of a sudden. It actually is really cold in here when I'm recording. Let's go ahead and warm up around the fire, but not until we hit the snopes. theme song here welcome to hit the snopes it's a segment in our show where we go on to the one of the best websites online we pit some classic wives tales and folklore against the experts at snopes.com and see what they have to say see if it holds up but uh, i don't want to talk about the snopes writers i want to talk more about you jackson because uh as we all know you are an eagle scout and you're very good at being outdoors and you're a very good boy scout boy well i'm flattered uh, we, I, I think I feel like you find any opportunity you can to bring it up, so I'm going to go ahead and do that for you. But uh, you may actually already know this story since it comes from your tribe, your association, 
the 17-year-old Eagle Scout who built a nuclear reactor in his mother's backyard. How did you say the word nuclear there? Um, I wouldn't. Have, I said it the correct way, whatever that way that is. <laughs> okay, go on. I said it. The, I said it the proper way that you're supposed to. I'm sure. So this is the myth that in 1994. Have you heard this before? You don't have to. You don't have to feign ignorance if you have. No, I, I haven't heard this before. Oh, even even though yes, you are right. I was an Eagle Scout. <laughs> Okay, fans who are listening, I don't actually talk about that very much. I know, I'm just giving him a hard time. <laughs> but this is and this is actually something that I had heard of before it surfaced again on Snopes, so that's why it's and I'm excited that you haven't cuz I get to bring this story to you. And it definitely sounds like a hell of a story, but is it true? Well, let's get to the basics first. David Hahn is the hero of this story. He's a boy scout in the early 90s. He was fascinated by chemistry, spent years conducting amateur chemistry experiments, which sometimes caused small explosions and other mishaps. Okay, we got a real Dexter's Lab situation going on. He was inspired in part by reading the Golden Book of Chemistry Experiments and tried to collect samples of every element on the periodic table, which if you know anything about the periodic table means <laughs> that includes some radioactive ones, but that wasn't enough to stop him. He later received a merit badge in atomic energy and became fascinated with the idea of creating a breeder reactor in his home. So Han diligently amassed radioactive materials by collecting small amounts of them via household, pro uh, household products. So he was pulling materials from smoke detectors, camping lanterns, radium from clocks, tritium from gun sights, so he had his quote-unquote reactor that was bored out of a block of lead, and he, he, he got lithium from buying $1,000 worth of lithium batteries. So he, uh, he, he basically <laughs> he just found whatever household objects he could find. Because, I mean, he's, he's a miner. He's 17 years old. He can't even buy spray paint. And he's trying to collect radioactive materials. So he pulls them from just household objects that have trace amounts. And he just amasses thousands of them until he has enough. So he's pulling uh, Americ Americium, Americium? Ah, it, it, from smoke detectors. You see what I'm saying? Like he's, it's like they warned you if you drop the thermometer, be careful with uh, mercury poisoning because there used to be trace amounts of mercury inside of thermometers. And so he's pulling mm. these materials from household objects. He posed as an adult scientist or a high school teacher to gain trust with professionals via letters. And he succeeded despite many misspellings and obvious errors. <laughs> uh, David Hahn ultimately hoped to create a breeder reactor using low-level isotopes to transform samples of thorium, uranium into fissionable isotopes. All right, well, there's a lot of words and a lot of science words there that make it sound believable. But uh, is this true? According to Snopes.com, this is 100% true. There was a boy named David Hahn, and he did do this thing. His homemade reactor, though, never came anywhere near reaching critical mass. But it did end up emitting dangerous amounts of radiation, well over 1,000 times normal background radiation. So... David was, uh, you know, like you, you have these people who are so smart, they're dumb. Yeah. Well, he was not entirely stupid. 
because uh, he was quite alarmed by the amount of radiation that was being emitted, and he began to dismantle his experiments. But with a chance encounter with the police, I think he got pulled over, and he had a he had some sort of material in his car that was radioactive, and when his car was searched, he had to tell the police not to touch it because it was radioactive. And that triggered an investigation, and the uh, United States Environmental Protection Agency designated Han's mother's property as a Superfund hazardous materials cleanup site. So they had dis- is that what it's is that what it said on the sign? Like they got they got specialty made warning tape that was super fun but hazardous. No, super fun. <laughs> I mean, this kid's having a blast in here, but uh, this is dangerous. Like we got. <laughs> this thing is two things for sure hella fun but also very dangerous you had to take down the no moms allowed sign and put up the nuclear hazard sign but we put super fun on there to make sure he still wanted to go in i mean he's having a blast like he we're really proud of him he's he's got his little experiment going on but uh no he he could kill people within a several mile, mile radius so we do need to shut this on down so they completely dismantled the shed and all of its contents and just buried them somewhere in uh, low-level radioactive waste in Utah. So you got it somewhere around there. Like, you're enjoying the, uh, the fruits of this guy's experiment. Unknown to that officials, his mom, who was fearful that she would lose her house if the full extent of the radiation were known, she'd already collected the majority of the radioactive materials and just threw them in the kitchen garbage. She just threw them in the trash. So it sounds like his genius in terms of chemistry, if it's genetic at all, came from the dad. Yeah. I- <laughs> Han and his mother both refused medical evaluation for radiation exposure. But uh, we do know for a fact that they were exposed to a lot. So this is, this is the uh, child genius. And, and you know what? I'm going to take it back. He fits in that category. He's so smart that he's stupid. That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is knowing how to build a nuclear reactor in your shed. Wisdom is not building a nuclear reactor in your shed. But just from the title, I definitely didn't think this was true because I, I there is an atomic energy. There is a merit badge for atomic energy. So I thought that maybe this was a extrapolation on that. And that, like, it was, like, an urban legend started by the Boy Scouts. Like, you, like when you see there's a badge for atomic energy, it's a really easy story to jump to. It's like, you know, one Boy Scout built an atomic reactor, and that's how he got this badge. And, you know, like, the FBI had to come in and shut it down. And it's, it's a really easy to build a narrative off of that. But this is true. I definitely wouldn't have believed it if I didn't trust Snopes so much. So, as an Eagle Scout, what did you do with your atomic reactor? I actually didn't get the atomic reactor merit badge. I skipped that one. It, they don't tell you this, this very much, but you don't have to get every merit badge to becoming an Eagle Scout. You just have to get an unbelievable number of them. So you skipped the uh, nuclear fission and went instead for basket weaving. Uh, I didn't do basket weaving, but I did do manure detection. <laughs> That's not real. Okay, it was, it was just called farm animal study or something. <laughs> all i remember though is that the only studying we were doing was in their dookie well you don't have to listen to dookie you can listen to fantastic <laughs> tunes we had one at the start of the show it was called threadbare that's our theme song it's by glenn merle off the album burden of proof 
Check it out on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get music. Always thankful to him for improving the quality of our show and the production value with this music. And I want to thank Connor Voigt for our Hit the Snopes jingle. You heard that in the middle of the show before I started talking about Eagle Scouts. Fan of the show and appreciative of him for uh, doing the same thing, improving our quality. So thanks, Connor. And then if you want to follow us on our social media, our Twitter is sconfidentshow and our Instagram is strictlyconfidentialshow. And if you want to send us stuff or be on our show or send us a topic or anything like that, our email is strictlyconfidentialshow at gmail.com. Look, we don't make empty threats. We will put you on this show. We will interview you. Don't tempt us. We will. And we'd love to do it. So if you have something you want to talk about personally, something that you're passionate about, we'd like to have you on the air and let you uh, ramble for a little while. And hopefully we can cut it down into a cohesive show. But uh, if you like this show, why don't you go ahead and tell your best friend to listen to it as well? Maybe they can hear the episode where you are talking with us. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, if you want to leave us a review, that's another way you could help uh, on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And yeah, I think that's about it. That's about all I got. Well, this has been Strictly Confidential. I've been Jackson. And I've been Asher. As always, stay sports. Hell yeah! <laughs> I couldn't come up with anything. I think, I think that'll do. <laughs> 